Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Georgia Music Teacher Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. As I reflect on nearly a year's worth of episodes, I find it remarkable how diverse our members' backgrounds are. They bring such a richness of experiences to the organization, and I'm fascinated by every conversation because even though we are united in our love for music and education, we are so interesting and unique. With that in mind, I am really excited to meet Elena Cholakova today and to hear her stories. So without further delay, let's get to it. Hello, Elena. Hello, babe. Thank you for having me. Sure. Let's just get started with a background question. Tell me about what you do and most importantly, how you got to where you are today. Yes. So I am a director of piano studies at Emory University. I'm also the director of the Emory Young Artists Piano Competition at Emory I am originally from Bulgaria, but I did my education here in the United States. And right after I finished my DMA, actually, I started working at Emory first as a part-time artist affiliate. And then that job later turned into a full-time position. That's wonderful. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in music? Was it your idea? Was it your parents' idea? Was your family musical? Yes, um, my family is not musical at all, actually. And it's it's funny how I got started with piano because it was my dad who signed me up for lessons, but my mom has sent him to sign me up for English. And that group was full. So he didn't want to come home and, you know, there's nothing that, you know, I can do. So he signed me up for piano lessons after a brief conversation with the piano teacher. And that's how it all started. <laughs> how were How old were you at that point? I was five, uh, and the educational system in Bulgaria is such that, it, at least it used to be, I'm not familiar with it now, but basically the, edu- the music education picks you up at an early age, and you go into a specialized school from grade one. You study solfege, you study ear training, you study music theory, chamber music is introduced at a very young age, and of course, lessons that happen or two or three times a week through the music school. Hmm. Can you tell us a little more about the process of going into that vein? Is it possible for someone to study music as a hobby or is that really the only access to music education? used to be the case that that was the only way to study music education. Um, And also there were specialized exams, for instance, you're not guaranteed a spot at the school, so you had to re-audition every year and you had to maintain a certain level of playing and you have to cover certain repertoire. And also, I believe in third grade and also in seventh grade, they had these entrance exams where new kids would come and audition if and if they're not happy with your progress, you're basically out of that school and that's the end of your music education as we knew it. But that was... I grew up in Bulgaria in the 90s, so things probably have changed somewhat, I'm sure. But it used to be the case that music education was done in a certain way, and that was the only way to do it. Yeah. What was the audition process like? Do you remember? I mean, you talked about the formal education starting in first grade. What kind of pieces would a first grader play in order (laughs) to enter into that system? So I don't know if I remember specifically what I played in first grade, but I do remember my exam in entrance exam into fourth grade because 
on top. So you need to present an etude, Bach. I remember we had to do a sonatina and another romantic piece. But more importantly, we had to do an ear training examination, which included sight singing and transposing the tune to different keys. But I believe the overall goal was that the ear training had a meaningful impact on our playing, which I think it's actually very true. Hmm. Do you find that it's advantageous in that system to have perfect pitch? <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> because it's easy to transpose. And interesting, you asked that question. I think most pianists do develop perfect pitch at some point in our lives. Do you agree? Yeah, I, I, at least it's my experience teaching. And I guess growing up, most of my friends had perfect pitch somehow. Interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about your practice routine as a young pianist and maybe a little bit about your practice routine right now as a professional pianist? Yeah, well, it changed quite a bit because um, when I was younger, I so the last three grades of high school, I had this individual plan of education. I don't know how else to translate it, except that it was almost like homeschooling, but not quite not quite as detached because I had all the time in the world to practice and I had to go and attend certain classes, let's say some harmony or theory classes and take exams throughout the year, which left eight, nine hours a day to practice, which was wonderful as a developing pianist. And, um, Right now, well, right now I'm getting ready for this concert in September, so I'm practicing quite a bit. But, you know, when you're a professional, you have so much more going on in your life with teaching, with your academic duties. So practicing for me right now, well, I am still on the summer break, which is fantastic. But usually it happens very early in the morning before eight o'clock. And then if I am feeling that I need to practice more, it will happen really late at night when my kids are in bed. So basically, it used to be that my life circles around practicing now, practicing circles around all the duties that I fulfill in my life. Yeah, you mentioned that um, when you were younger, you know, you would have such... Uh, such a free and open schedule. And then you mentioned the numbers eight to nine hours. Did, did you practice eight to nine hours as a young child? I did. I mean, not as a very young child, but the between the age of 15 to 18, I did practice those hours. And it was expected of us. I think that I would use them much more wisely now that I'm older and I know what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong. And I know how to get there. But when you're young, you spend so much time, you know, searching for answers musically and technically because you're not quite developed. So a lot of that time went into just repetition and cleaning up etudes and passages. So I do see the benefits. I would say I reap some of the benefits now because things that I've played come back to me easily, especially things that I've spent a good amount of time on. So yeah, I, I try to maintain these hours in graduate school whenever I could as well. But now, I mean, clearly it's impossible. And as we get older, the body also feels those hours. There's only a certain amount that we can practice without hurting the lower back or the arms or whatnot. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you just touched on, you just briefly mentioned graduate school, and I know that you said that you came to America and you studied here, and obviously now you're in America. Can you tell us a little bit about that decision and that journey of coming to America? Yeah, um, I don't know how familiar our um, audience is with <laughs> the political situation in Eastern Europe in the 90s, but it just, it was a very tough economic situation. So classical music was probably at the lower bottom of what you could choose as a profession. There was just absolutely no future in it. So my class, my friends, and probably a good five years before or just after me, the people who graduated, who were classical musicians, who were good at what we were doing as young musicians, we had no choice but to leave if we wanted to continue to do what we did. So we were all looking for opportunities. Most of my friends stayed in Europe. There were just about two or three of us who came to the United States. And it wasn't easy. You know, there was no information, unfortunately. Um, I didn't have a computer at my house. I had to go to an internet cafe, you know, pay to use a computer. I remember I took the TOEFL exam and that was the first time I used the mouse in my life. So I had to actually do the tutorial. And when they teach you, click here, click here. So it, it was just a different life. It was, it sounds like it was the dinosaur age, but I might as well say it was because of the lack of information and whatnot. But I came to the United States on a full scholarship to University of Central Arkansas, which was the only place where I applied to because Again, there was no information about any music schools or anything else. And from there, little by little, uh, I made my way through graduate school, you know, with a little more effort, a little more work and a lot of determination, you know, one one makes it through. But um, that was basically the reason why I left Bulgaria. Mm. So you mentioned earlier in this telling that there wasn't too many classical music opportunities in Eastern Europe. What is it like now? Do you know? Music is definitely back. I think that the tradition is there. The appreciation is there. Let's let's say just that classical music doesn't pay as much as other professions. And because it's sponsored by the government, there's just not a lot of money going into that. There are lots of festivals going on. I actually performed at one this summer when I was back home. And it's really meaningful to do it and to play at these concert halls that I grew up playing at. So there's the need, there's the love, there's the appreciation. But I would say there's still not the financial support that classical music requires. Yeah. So it's always fascinating to ask people who come from other countries, come to America to study whether or not they have any desire of going back to their home country or if they want to stay in America. What was your heart at that point? Um, if there were opportunities back home, would you have wanted to go back home? I I don't think so. I came to America and I felt at home. I felt that this I never felt homesick <laughs> and my parents don't believe me when I say that, but it's absolutely true. I, I made it my goal to find friends, American friends. I made it my goal to, you know, to feel at home here. And I met enough welcoming people in my life who helped me along the way. So no, not really. I, my goal was always to get educated and to stay here because 
I felt like this is the place that gave me opportunities and this is where I wanted to make my life. Well, that's wonderful. We're so glad that you stayed. <laughs> Do you have a favorite memory of your teachers that you can share with us? <laughs> I have many, many favorite memories, perhaps the, one of the more recent ones. Um, so when I was a graduate student in Chicago, so Northwestern acquired this outstanding new building, which is absolutely fantastic. But this was after I left Northwestern. And when I was a graduate student there, we were separated into two buildings. One building was at the lake. And this is where the instrumentalists practice. And the pianists, the pianists and the singers, we were in this building where the practice rooms were on the third floor. So winters can get really, really cold in Chicago. And the heat, it was just an old building. There was literally no heat going up to the third floor on some of the practice rooms. So we would complain, of course, because imagine practicing in, in a place that is so cold. And my teacher would say that it builds character. So any difficulty and the cold weather builds character. And maybe he was right. I have to say there was some truth to that. Wow. So now on the flip side, um, do you have any memories as a teacher about teaching and about your students that you can share with us? I have so many. I feel like I've been blessed meeting amazing young musicians here in Georgia. And um, even if I think back for the last five years, I have memories with each of the students that I've taught that is just special to me. If I have to pick one or two, maybe it would be Charlie Lee, who to me, he was such a special student and his performance of Ravel's on Dean. Just every time I think about it, I think that it's it's really on Dean he captured when I when I worked with him. Some of my college students, there is a I have a student right now. His name is Colin Song, and during the pandemic, he recorded this Toccata by Vasil Kazanjiev. He is a living Bulgarian composer and. We recorded it because he loved the Takata and he learned it and we sent it to Mr. Kazanjiv and we had we we got the warmest email back thanking us for the recording, thanking us for the rendition and for understanding the piece so well. And it was just such a special moment during the times when spirits were so low and where we couldn't perform. So I think this will really stay in my memory as something very significant. Yeah, so I, I'm always a fan of finding new music and new composers. So I don't know this composer. Can you spell his last name for us so that we can find him? Yes. Unfortunately, I don't think you'll find his music published in the United States, but I have that cut if you're interested. Last name is K-A-Z-A-D-J-I-E-V, Vasil Kazanjiev. Okay. I I believe the the performance of his Toccata is still on the Emory's music department's webpage. <laughs> he did such a good job, I thought it should be there. <laughs> Great, then I'll have to look it up and take yeah. a listen to it. Yeah. Can you describe your journey as a teacher? How have you changed? Who or what have been your key influences? So I started teaching right when I finished. I taught somewhat during my DMA years, but it was mostly just beginner pianists in the North Shore area. But when I came to Georgia, one of my friends 
coincidentally, she left for Switzerland, so she left me a lot of her quite good pre-college students. So, you know, when you're straight out of graduate school, your expectations are very high and the demands as well. And realistically speaking, these kids have only so much time to practice, right? So I would often be quite impatient, very demanding on them. And I think I've learned to adjust to that somewhat with the people that I teach, depending on their goals. If somebody, so let's say last year, one of my students was auditioning for graduate school with piano. So the expectations that I had of her were quite high as well. So just so that she accomplishes the goals. But as the years have went on, I think I've adjusted to the repertoire that I assigned and being realistic of what can be accomplished more so than before. And I think that also comes with experience. You know, I used to just assign the biggest pieces in the world and think that this is the only way to win competitions or to move forward or to impress. And I think that now I try to be more creative with my ideas and repertoire selection. I always try to find pieces that are not the most standard repertoire, or let's say if one is, then whatever we choose to put on a recital is not. Because I, I really believe in promoting music that we're not, we're not used to hearing in concert halls as much. Hmm. What are some resources that you go to in order to find these lesser known works? So I have to go back to my roots of how I was taught. And some of the music that I was taught is simply not performed here. Even for the pieces that little kids play, there were these books of music, compilations of Russian composers, some of we have not even heard in here in the United States. I found some of these scores on a website that it was something like rare Russian music. And I, I had to pay to download them. So now I have all of them. I mean, clearly, I'm not going to only assign that. But I think it's good to have resources like this so that you can draw pieces that necessarily other teachers won't look at. Or, you know, if you're bored teaching the same piece, you can certainly look at, into that as well. And of course, new music. I am a opponent of new music. I am, I'm always looking for pieces by living composers, pieces by women composers. I, in my own research and performance, I am focusing on such projects as well. Hmm. So speaking of that, uh, composers and pieces that you play, do you have any musical or pedagogical projects you are currently working on? I am working on, I just got a grant at the end of the spring semester. So I'm commissioning a solo CD of a CD, but just women composers. So it will be an hour long digital album. And I have identified four women composers that I'll be working with in the next year, year and a half. And we'll be collaborating and they'll be writing the music. And once it's all said and done, I'll record the project. And then I hope to be continuously performing these pieces, whether it's the entire CD project or not. These pieces will be, I'll find a way to program them alongside other repertoire, which I find very interesting. So this is on the forefront of my research right now, as well as pieces for a violin and piano by 
Jennifer Higdon and Robert Aldrich, uh, Florence Price that I'm currently practicing and learning for a performance in Bogota, Colombia in September. So the, really, this is what interests me. I feel the future of classical music. Of course, we will always hear the pieces we love, but we'll have to think creatively to attract the audience back into the recital hall after the pandemic. And I foresee a fusion of arts, fusion. I foresee more of a collaboration with visual arts, technology, media. So I think this is something I want to explore in my research in the future. That's great. We look forward to that CD coming out or the, that uh, electronic yeah. recording coming out. Thank you so much. What aspect of your life and career as a musician has surprised you? How does it measure up to the life you envisioned for yourself as a young musician? I think being trained as a piano performance major and studying so much solo repertoire, I never envisioned the sheer amount of chamber music repertoire I would play or just the collaboration with other artists, which has surprised me in the best possible way because I have absolutely fallen in love with chamber music, with collaborating with composers. It is something <laughs> I used to joke that when I first started working at Emory, the music I learned felt like a second DMA because I had not played any of that repertoire. So for a good number of years, I was just learning all the Brahms sonatas for violin and piano, for cello piano, all the Beethoven sonatas for instruments, Hindemith, you name it. Every piece that was in the standard repertoire, I had to learn and perform. Trios as well. I used to perform with the Atlanta chamber players. So all combinations of instruments, piano quartets, quintets, the Atlanta chamber players have this rapido uh, competition where composers are asked to compose music in two weeks. They have 14 days to finish the piece for a certain configuration of instruments, and then we would perform it. So I feel this has been the greatest joy and unexpected joy, I would say, as a classical pianist of my career. I, I don't know what I envisioned exactly back in the day. I knew I always wanted to be in academia from day one. That was my goal. I stepped in the college classroom and I felt at home. I felt like this is where I belong and this is what I want to do. And I'm blessed enough to do it in my career. But performance wise, I feel a pianist, being a pianist could be quite lonely at times, just practicing these hours on our own. But looking forward to a project and collaborating with other artists makes it worthwhile. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I can definitely sense your joy when you're talking about this. So I'm curious because we've touched on this off and on throughout our conversation about playing newer music and commissioning music. Is there a difference in your process between learning traditional standard repertoire versus learning something that was freshly composed that perhaps there's no precedent for how it should be performed or how it sounds? Yeah, learning standard repertoire, we have the advantage of listening to recordings and, you know, our ears are trained as musicians. So in your spare time, you listen to the recording enough and then you learn it a lot easier. 
at least in my experience. Um, and also you've heard, you've probably played other pieces by that composer and you're used to the techniques, you're used to the pedaling, articulation, whatnot. You're somewhat familiar. Learning and performing new music, it's challenging in such ways and also gratifying, and immensely gratifying, I should say. For instance, I've been practicing this piece by Jennifer Higdon. It's called String Poemic Poems, something like that. I forgot the exact name, but it's five movements. And the first movement is called Jagged Climb. And I, for four days, I just couldn't get these eight measures. And I don't know what I was thinking. I was just like, there's just no way this is impossible. And the moment it clicks and you can play it, it's, I mean, I don't know that how to express the feeling that I, that, I, that I get just from being able to do that. And there is a recording of this piece. It's not nearly commissioned, but there's maybe one recording of that piece. And it's done professionally. So it's done in the studio. I read uh, the violinist confessed to like recording passages over and over of it because it's just, it's very challenging. But, you know, we're going to have to sit down and perform it in a month from now. And it will be a great joy, I'm sure. So, yeah. Learning new music, our I feel like our rhythmic skills and are put to the grind. And also, I feel, you know, with standard repertoire, there are certain combinations. I don't know which other way to explain it. Between arpeggio scales, chromatic passages, chordal technique, that it sort of all makes sense in a way. With new music, there's not as much of that. And I feel that at times where... I'm really put to the grind is the times where my technique has not seen this before. So I am learning yet again as a student what works in a certain passage and what doesn't. Mm. That's wonderful. It sounds like it's expanding you and stretching you technically and musically. And it seems yes. like you find that very rewarding. Yes, by all means, for sure. Okay, this is our very last question. Do you have any advice for young musical professionals and teachers as they embark on their careers and enter professional life? I do. Never say no. The first opportunities you get are not going to be the ones you necessarily want to do, maybe, or maybe not the most satisfying professionally but you never know where that path will lead you. So I would say if you're just finishing your DMA and you get a offer to play Rachmaninoff cello sonata and you've never played it before, buckle up and practice and do it because that opportunity will certainly lead you to others. Or if you get offered a part-time job teaching ear training or music theory one, don't turn it down. Do everything you're asked to do. And I really believe with enough uh, hard work and determination, one will find their way. I like this advice a lot because it makes me think of the years right after I finished graduate school and being offered opportunities and feeling as if 
I had a conversation with myself. Like I wasn't sure if I could actually do those things that I was being asked and being very fearful of committing because being fearful of falling short and um, doing a bad job at it. And then I just, I came to a point where I was like, no, this is early on in my career. I need to take risks and I need to say yes to everything. And even if I am not the best pianist they have collaborated with, I will be a better pianist after this project than I was before. So yes, no, absolutely. And normally when you get asked these first opportunities, a bunch of people said no. So <laughs> you're their last resort and they'll remember that. So I think it's 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 important to challenge yourself, as you mentioned. Hmm. That's great. Well, Elena, it was delightful meeting you. I have to sing your name all across the state at various events and your students do such a wonderful job. And so thank you for your investment in their lives. And thank you for your investment in GMTA. It was so much fun hearing about your life and your perspective and your insights and so inspiring to hear how active and busy you are performing and advocating for others. Thank you so much for all the work that you do for our profession. And with that, I wish you happy teaching and happy students.